welcome to another episode of the nishan garg show my name is nishan garg this show is about extracting information on mindfulness and personal development thank you for listening to this podcast today my today's guest is shelly brown she has over 25 years of experience as a national and regional sales professional for both private and public corporations in the hospitality and technology sectors 6 years ago she faced her greatest challenge when she suffered a serious spinal injury after a lifetime of fitness that included 25 marathons 6 ultra marathons and countless half marathons leading 4 to 6 indoor cycling classes a week she found herself dealing with chronic pain and an impaired ability to walk she was in a constant flight fight freeze mentality about her health career and future then she discovered the practice of mindfulness and learned that stress is a physiological experience not something you can talk out talk yourself out of now let the episode begin Shelly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nishant. So happy to be here. My pleasure. So I would like to ask you, how would your family describe what do you do for a living? <laughs> how would my family describe what I do for a living? It's, it's a funny question. My, I have an elderly mother who lives in San Diego, and her experience with mindfulness has really been more of the going to a spa and smelling smelling essential oils and closing her eyes and breathing so she, i don't really know that she has a good understanding of what it is that that i do <laughs> my sister is very much into mindfulness and meditation and she would probably describe what i do is inviting people to explore a different way of of being in life and then my significant other would describe it as i sit around with people and go om go om <laughs> yes what does that mean he he i think he thinks that i go i know he knows he he just teases me that mindfulness what i do with people is sit in a circle and chant om okay but it's really he's he's really teasing he he is not a mindfulness practitioner however he is very very solid and and doesn't get swept away by his thoughts he's he's very practical in terms of his being in life so he lets things kind of drift he's kind of mindful almost intuitively interesting mm-hmm. so you have had more than 25 years of sales experience in the industry including hospitality and in different different industries and after that you had some injury and that injury was related to your spinal and you got into chronic pain so can you please uh, explain your story about your struggle in that painful time absolutely so yep i was in the corporate world for about 25 years most of which was in sales roles 
related to hospitality. So some hotel, but also some technology sales, everything from direct sales to customers in the hotel industry to enterprise sales. And I know that as my responsibilities began increasing, I became more and more stressed. And one of the ways that I mitigated that stress was was through physical activities. And I was teaching about six spin classes a week at the health club and running a lot. And I began participating in marathons and then I became an ultra marathon runner. And really that was one of the one of the biggest stress reliefs for me was through this physical activity. And in 2010, 2011, I began suffering with some spinal pain. And then ultimately, it seemed like overnight, I went into this intense chronic pain. And what had happened was my vertebrae collapsed on the nerves going down my legs. And it was like going from stress to complete fight or flight, not knowing when this pain would end not knowing who I was because I'd really attached my identity in being this physical athlete. And so now I was in this situation where I could barely walk, where I couldn't work, I couldn't sleep, and I just had no idea how to navigate through life. And so it was like this throat-gripping anxiety that had me shaking almost every waking hour. And in that time of suffering, you were going through some transition process. You had attached your identity with your physical athlete. And when that identity was not there, you were getting into suffering. Uh, in some of your posts, you have mentioned about lean suffering. Can you please explain about suffering and lean suffering in connection to your Injury. I'm not actually sure what you mean by lean suffering. I'm sorry. Or suffering in general. Yep. So I believe that all suffering has to do with the thoughts between our ears and that, oh, learn. Okay. You mean learn suffering? Yep. So learn suffering. I come from a family that goes from zero to crisis in seconds. And that means that every situation wasn't just a problem. It was an actual crisis. That's the way my family perceived and reacted to every situation. There was a lot of fear, a lot of worry, and we weren't poor by any means. We had everything that we could possibly need in life. And yet, my family of origin seemed to worry about everything. And I think that I learned how to worry and suffer through my family. We aren't born with worry. We're not born with anxiety. We're not born thinking that everything is a crisis. And I learned this from, from my parents, really, just that just everything was, when everything feels chaotic, you can worry, you can be in fear. And that was my go-to. I didn't know any differently. And it's different because other people come from families where there are real true things to worry about, like where you're going to get food, shelter, 
health concerns. And so I feel like suffering is, is definitely universal and yet it's different for everybody. Yes. And how did you learn to deal with the sufferings? In my mindfulness practice or prior to? Or during the times of your injury? Well, during the times of my injury, I literally didn't have anything to help with the suffering other than to uh, emote, to cry and sob. And one of the things that I decided to do that would be helpful was set my smartphone alarm to ring every hour. When the smartphone rang, I would write down something to be grateful for. And so I would write down a gratitude. And I'd also remind myself to take a breath. And I'd also write down a prayer so that at least for one minute during the day, I wouldn't get sucked into this vortex of, of pain. I'd, I'd have a moment of freedom. And then at the end of the day, I could look back on that list and at least see one minute of every hour that I had something to remember to be grateful for. And this is like your day review. At the end of your day, you are reviewing your day, what worked well and what did not work well. And this is amazing practice, actually. Thank you. I actually still find myself doing it uh, to this day, keeping gratitude lists and gratitude journals and expressing I feel like gratitude is really the biggest way to help us reduce the the feeling of suffering. How can we cultivate gratitude in sufferings and stressful times? It's an interesting question given our current situation in the world. Um, the biggest way to cultivate gratitude for me is the practice of noticing and the practice of noticing comes from the practice of mindfulness being here now and intentionally noticing from the fact that each of my body parts are not in pain. And even if one part, body part may be experiencing pain, not all my body parts are experiencing pain. So sitting right here, right now, I can actually scan through my body and notice that I don't have pain right now and that all of my body parts are working. And one of the practices that I do is doing an intentional body scan, going from my toes to the top of my head and thanking each of my body parts for what they have been able to do and what they are able to do today, or being intentional about the fact that we have this technology today that allows you and I to communicate together and walking to the sink to get water and have a, have a glass of water when I'm thirsty. And it's just the practice of constant noticing each little thing that we are able to do on a daily basis, even during a time that feels very chaotic and feels like we're suffering because of our lack of human connection in person. Yeah, and gratitude is mostly focusing on the things that we have. And I strongly believe that we human beings are wired to focus on the things that we do not have. And in this pandemic diseases these days, we are in isolation and we are focusing on things 
that we do not have or we cannot control on. You know, gratitude is a practice that holds our life together. And you were mentioning about intentional body scan. I have not done that personally, intentionally, or maybe I have done it unconsciously. So can you please elaborate more on that intentional body scan for the listeners, how they can use that and benefit from that in their day-to-day life? Absolutely. And thank you, you know, for mentioning a lot of people are suffering because of the things that we focus on that negativity bias on the things that that we don't have. And the antithesis of that is focusing on what we do have, obviously. And I think you and I both know that. And so the intentional body scan, the body scan is a very basic practice to come into the present with our bodies. And it can be as simple as closing our eyes and taking a moment to scan from the top of our head down through our body, down through our arms, all the way down to our fingers, and kind of intentionally stopping at each body part to bring our awareness to that body part. Usually I actually start down with my toes and without moving my toes, seeing if I can bring my awareness to that body part and filling that area up with a sense of gratitude for the toes that were and each little toe that moves and helps me balance. And then going from there to the soles of my feet that have allowed me to walk or stand and connect to the earth, connect to the ground. And then going up to each of the different body parts and again, expressing gratitude and being intentional with what each of those body parts have allowed me to do or allow us to do and even reflecting on something that, you know, whether you're a runner, whether you're a bicyclist or whether you walk or even just the fact that your knees bend to help you sit down. So it's just a very intentional practice and it doesn't have to look like anything other than what you want it to be. Yeah, thank you for sharing. So it's very easy for human beings to be grateful when everything is going fine. And that's the real challenge to be in a grateful state when things are not going the way we want them to go. So how often do you have this intentional body scan practice in your day-to-day life? So I meditate every day and I start my meditation practice off with a body scan. So it's pretty much every day. And then During this particular period of time, I'm spending a lot of time in meditation. So a a couple hours a day, and I know not everybody has has that amount of time, but I do do that intentional body scan every day, and it could be three minutes or less. And what kind of meditation do you pursue? One of the meditations that I pursue is something that I invite people who may be skeptical about mindfulness and meditation may think that it's something that's not for them. There's a lot of people who often think that meditation has to look a certain way. And one of the ways that I practice mindfulness is listening to music, but I do it in a specific way. I'll choose one instrument to focus on throughout the whole song 
And I'll focus on that particular instrument. And like regular meditation, when my mind gets pulled away from distraction or I hear another instrument or I hear the singer, I'll bring my awareness back to that instrument again and again. And it's one of my favorite practices because I love music so much and universal language is music. And even if you, so even if it's rock music, Pick a drum, pick the drums and see if you can bring your awareness to the drums. And when you get distracted by Mick Jagger or Robert Plant or Justin Bieber or whoever it is. Yeah. And this is, so speaking of mindfulness and meditation, so the myth around meditation is this is something you have to chant or you have to sit idle. So meditation is, you know, basically you're trying to, focus on the things that you have at present moment and you are focusing on the music you are and specifically you are focusing on that singer's voice or only on one instrument this is another form of meditation yes i remember uh, i actually don't remember that she she's a very very high level athlete and her meditative practice is to play the song on repeat when she runs that same song is on repeat for 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And that's our meditation. I love that. I love that. I'm such a music person. I love music. And I think one of the things that would be amazing, you know, you can find lyrics online all the time. But one of my intentions is to actually listen to music to try to learn the lyrics without going on Google and looking at the lyrics. So yeah, this is your chanting practice. You know, you're chanting lyrics and this becomes chanting meditation. Yep. So I do traditional meditation. I do breath awareness meditation. I do, you know, I mean, breathing anchor meditation. And one of the things that I also do is meta, love and kindness. And right now with the circumstances that are taking place in the world and and for your listeners who may not know what meta is, it, it really is, it really is a meditation on loving kindness. And it is really a meditation about compassion that all human beings wish to be happy. And it's a benevolent meditation. And there's some traditional phrases that are used, which are offerings of loving kindness to ourselves, to somebody who has been really kind to us, to a stranger, to someone with whom we have a difficult relationship, and then expanding it out to all beings. Uh, Is it energetically? Yes, absolutely. And I think that, again, is a meditation that we can be really intentional with given, given whatever's going on with us. We don't have to use the offerings that are traditionally used. We can be very, very specific. Like, you know, may, may, may all beings be, have freedom from illness. May all beings have food and shelter. May all beings have sustenance and medicine, you know, whatever those wishes are that we want to energetically wish out to others, we can be really, really specific about those wishes. Yep. And what are the myths that you see or hear around mindfulness all the time? Wow. So yeah, a lot of times when I'm doing workshops, it's with people who really don't have the practice. And the myths are the typical, I don't have time. And my response to that is, 
if you think about all the time you spend in worry, fear, regret, remorse, scrolling through on autopilot on social media, I am pretty confident that the time that you spend doing that far exceeds the few minutes that you might want to explore cultivating a practice. So it could be five minutes, it could be three minutes, it could be micro mindfulness practices, taking one minute at the top of the hour to take four really deep intentional breaths. So that's one of the myths. The other myth is I can't sit and mindfulness doesn't have to be practiced sitting down. It could be walking. It could be whatever it is that you're doing. And Walking that, meditation. Yeah, just feeling the soles of your feet lifting and lowering, feeling your heel touch the ground as the other foot is lifting, even if it's just walking from one room to another. And then also, I'm not good at it. And I don't think there's any such thing as not being good at it. Minds think. And the alternative to minds thinking is something I don't think any of us want. And so knowing that minds do think and knowing that you're not doing anything wrong when your mind wanders, the practice is noticing that your mind has wandered and bringing it back to the object of the meditation. So and there, there are so many thoughts in our mind uh, and those thoughts are scattered. And most of the thoughts are coming from our past beliefs and conditioning. And not all the thoughts are going to serve us. When we are mindful, when we are focusing on our thoughts and patterns, then we can choose which thoughts are going to serve us and which are not. And we can choose to pick which are going to serve us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's really three kinds of distractions or sufferings, you know, and one of them is arguing with reality. Like you can't be happy with what is because you're complaining or you're worrying or you're really just not accepting what's happening right here, right now. So that's one way that we suffer is acceptance of the reality. Exactly. And then I'll be happy when. So we make our happiness contingent on when something else happens. Like I'll be happy when we're done with this virus. I'll be happy when I get a raise. I'll be happy when I get a new job. I'll be happy when I get a new car. I'll be happy when, you know, so-and-so stops doing that thing that they're doing that's making me miserable. So we make our happiness contingent on something that has not yet happened and may, may not happen. And this is very profound because we human beings unconsciously operate in that way. We unconsciously attach ourselves with that emotions and thoughts about future. That if we get that car, if we get that house, or if we get that thing, we will be happy. I remember this saying from Thignathan, there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. Happiness lies inside us. And we cannot name this. It's an experience. We can only experience this. Oh my gosh, I love that. I love that so much. And, you know, I know that there's probably some people that are in corporate roles that may be listening. And I remember many sufferings of, I'm not going to make my quota. I'm not going to make my quota. And if I can't make my quota, I, you know, don't know what I'm going to do. And all the fears and worries that come up in those type, in the role that I was in or putting 
all my happiness contingent on a contract being signed and sitting there shaking at the end of the quarter, waiting for these contracts to come in. And I couldn't sleep and I couldn't think about anything else other than these contracts, whether they were going to come in or, or not. And it's funny how much we are being measured with KPIs and data and metrics, and we make our happiness contingent on a dashboard. And that's a sad reality because success, KPI, numbers, we can measure, but we cannot measure happiness. Mm-mm. If no. we have a barometer to measure happiness, people will be happy because we cannot see our happiness level. There is no level. The more we get happy, there is another level. We can go deeper and deeper. Mm. And when we get, this is I remind myself all the time now, if I get something that I'm so excited about, and that is excitement, that is a thrill, that is not happiness. If I get my dream guest on a podcast, I remind myself, that is not happiness, that is a thrill and excitement, and it it is temporary. This will go away with time. Happiness last longer. It doesn't fade away because this is inside of us. I agree so much. You know, I think sometimes I think happiness is very different than joy. Sometimes I think... Can you please elaborate on that? (laughs) Happiness versus joy. Yep. So I'm having this conversation with you and I feel, I, I sense so much joy for this conversation that, that I can feel it in my body. And I think that's one of the beauties, uh, beautiful things about this practice is, is I'm so much more in tune with my body sensations, which is the first foundation of mindfulness. And we can talk about that in a second. And the happiness is more sort of that emotion, like excitement, like, oh, how, how exciting and celebration. But joy is almost just this, this state of, of being. And this joy is really very connected to gratitude. Like the fact that if I'm thirsty, I can have water. That's joy. And feeling gratitude and being in a grateful state creates more and more joy. Yeah. And it's, it's an emotion and it's up to us to create or generate that emotion however we want in our day-to-day life. Yeah. And I know it's a little bit semantics to say, you know, happiness versus joy. And you were saying, you know, excitement. So maybe it's that sort of excitement based on based on something that's happening, whereas maybe that feeling, that embodied feeling of joy just because we're alive and breathing. I mean, if I stop and think about the fact that I can take a really deep inhale and exhale, that gives me a sense of well-being and joy. That is something that expands my heart into this feeling of gratitude. And uh, speaking of happiness and gratitude, I can speak of myself that I did not live a happy life up to 29 years of my life. I was having money. I was working in the corporate. I had everything that anybody can desire, but I wasn't happy. I was always wanting to go for more, more money, better job, everything better and better. Things need to be better. And then when I realized the practices of mindfulness and the practices of gratitude, then I understand those things are great Asking for more things is fine, but you get to be happy first. If you're not happy with what you have, you will never be happy with what you get. And this, this, this statement always challenges me. If How can we tell somebody 
be happy if they are poor and they are suffering how can we cultivate happiness if we are suffering so deep and i don't have the answer can you do you have any thoughts on that shelly i think that that's a really hard question to answer and i haven't lived in that situation myself and yet when we think about people that are living in the hardest most difficult circumstances some of those people are actually experiencing happiness because they are very intentionally grateful for the smallest things and also i think some of it has to do with faith and hope and just really valuing being alive do you think faith can be non religious absolutely i really i really do it can look in any way anybody wants it to look i don't have a prescription that i would say this is the one way and it could just be faith in the in the breath faith in this next breath i don't know you know it could look very different or we can say trust yeah trust yeah yep and uh, going back to your story when you were struggling with spinal issues and then you started doing all these workshops seminars in the world of mindfulness what was your motivation to start doing all this work in the mindfulness space thank you for asking so after my spinal injury i did end up having a spinal fusion and it was very successful in fact i can run i don't run distance anymore but i can run and i am a fitness instructor as well however after i had the surgery my reaction was still in this fight or flight mode so i had been stressed and kind of what you would call high strung before my injury and then with the injury it was like thrown into complete fight or flight you know complete amygdala hijack and so i had the surgery returned to the work world but i was terrified i was still experiencing all of this fear response to everything i remember i would shake starting first thing in the morning like i was still under threat and i didn't know about the whole sort of central nervous system and sympathetic nervous system response and i ended up getting put on performance improvement plan at at a job because everything was causing me stress everything i wasn't really emotionally resilient i had times where i would cry at work which i couldn't understand why i was responding this way and why i couldn't talk myself out of this stress response and i ended up quitting a job and it was a job that i really really wanted i was an enterprise software sales person and i was just so stressed and so i found another job and i ended up getting put on performance improvement plan again and i ended up getting fired from this job because one day it was like the kettle burst i had been shaking every day at work i was afraid of my boss i was afraid of everything and i received an email i interpreted the email wrong i threw off my headset in a in an office space where 25 people were around me and i said f this i hate this f and place i'm leaving and it was like this outer body experience 
And I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I went into just hysterics, crying, ended up getting fired. And I had remembered somebody had talked to me about a mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And I thought, okay, I've tried everything else. I've tried TED Talks. I've tried self-talk. I've tried therapy. (laughs) Seriously, I've tried anti-anxiety medication. I have quit jobs. I have found new jobs. Something has got to change. And so I decided to find out what this mindfulness-based stress reduction program was about. I went to see the person who was facilitating it, and he explained it to me in a way that made so much sense that it changed my life. He said, nothing is wrong with you. Your stress response is like a bunch of wires that have been jumbled up. And he said, I'm confident this program, this eight-week program can help us reset your wiring so that you can reset your stress response. And I was like, oh my God, oh my gosh. And it gave me more hope than anything has ever given me in my life. Can you advise some of the stress reduction exercises? Yeah, so I went to this eight-week program fully willing to do whatever this person said because for the first time in my life, I realized that it wasn't this psychological problem for me. It was the stress response. And it doesn't take a spinal injury. It doesn't take chronic illness. It could be as simple as stress of work. It could be this particular season in our lives through this coronavirus that could catapult us into this stress response. And so I went to this program for eight weeks and it started with the body scan practice. It um, encompassed the breathing exercises, walking meditations and journaling and really settling down the nervous system so that instead of processing everything like it was an emergency through the amygdala, I was able to reset my system so that information would come through what is called the CEO of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, so that that part of my brain could actually help decide. I love it. CEO of the prefrontal cortex. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So that's how the door to the practice opened up for me. I did not come to this practice through yoga or through some sort of enlightened. I wanted to get my, excuse me, my shit together because I was losing my jobs and I was losing my mind. Yeah, you had only eight weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm getting digressed from the no. topic, but this is, this is making me, I'm laughing, I'm laughing right now. <laughs> good. Laughter is so good and healing. <laughs> well, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my deal is I bring this practice to people in the most inclusive and accessible way possible because it doesn't have to look like sitting in lotus position with your, you know, your thumb and your your middle finger together saying namaste. My deal is this is a transformative practice and in a really short period of time you can exercise that muscle of noticing and from there just the practice of mindfulness can help settle you. And then from there, it opens up so much more. So for me, it opened up a world of creativity. It opened up the practice of self-awareness because when you slow down enough, you are really able to see how you're behaving in real time so that any pattern 
that you have of reactivity or any pattern of behavior, you can get laser focused on what's going on within yourself so that you can almost change any pattern of reactivity through the practice of self-awareness. And what I mean by that is when you slow down enough, you can notice what's going on in your body. You can notice the feeling tone. Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? You can notice the thoughts that you're experiencing and then notice what behavior results from those other three things and then begin course correcting because you actually have the awareness of what is going on with you. And that is self-awareness. And self-awareness comes from slowing down, taking pauses. We are fast and furious. We want to be productive because of our worth is attached to productivity. We never think about slowing down, taking pauses. And when we do that, and we need mindfulness for that. Right. We need mindfulness practices. And with those mindfulness practices, we create self-awareness. We slow down. We take charge of our life. We take control of our emotions. And then we can respond in a better way rather than reacting. I would like to ask you how we can incorporate these practices at a workplace, in a nine-to-five job or in any sort of job setting or in any industry. I understand this, these kind of practices are easier when we are in our home. Nobody is watching us. How we can do that at our workplace? Sure. And by the way, I think that's a hugely important question. We spend most of our waking hours at work during normal circumstances. And nobody, mindfulness, nobody really cares if you're mindful, if you're not showing up better for other people. So I really feel like a lot of us begin to cultivate the practice of mindfulness as a way to be more calm. But what happens as a result is really the ability to show up better for others. And and I know that for me, the practice of mindfulness is all about how I show up for everybody else that I encounter in life. And in terms of how we can incorporate this into the workplace, we can do this in two ways. We can do it as an individual, but we can also do it as in teams or in groups of people. So as an individual, it could be as simple as setting a notification on your phone to take some mindful breaths you know, just once an hour, setting your phone and taking a minute to take some deep breaths to sort of reset. It could be during the first part of of your lunch break. And I do really feel that people should take advantage of of a break. A lot of people don't take a break because they feel like they're going to lose time being productive. And I think it's really, really an important component of of self-care to take your break and maybe listen to a meditation or put on your favorite music and intentionally focus on that instrument or have some kind of trigger like when you're about to take a walk to the the restroom or walk in another room given this today's situation to do mindfulness awareness of your feet. And, and what's your favorite practice during your during your working hours? I would say just that micro mindfulness practice um, on the hour, taking four deep breaths. Yeah, I read this book called The Power of Full Engagement. It talks about taking intermittent breaks during working hours or in your day. So usually we need to have 90 minute timer set. We should not work more than 90 minutes in one stretch. Mm-hmm. Because after 90 minutes, our brain needs downtime. If we are not giving enough time to our brain, we cannot think creatively. We are, you know, we are getting into fire flight mode. 
So to stop that and give our mind some space to think, we need to take pauses. And I know 90 minutes is not going to be easy for somebody who is having hard time to sit for a long time. So you can start with 20 minutes, 30 minutes. When I started doing this practice two years ago, I started with 30 minutes, right? Then I increased to 50 minutes, 60 minutes. Now I can do it for 90 minutes. And after that, I have my timer set on the computer or you can have it on the phone or any meet through any medium so that it reminds you to slow it down, take pause. And in that break, you know, it can be one minute, two minutes break. In that in that break, I do breathing basically or just walking around, talk to your coworkers, or do something to to do something else and break that normal pattern. And then when you get back to your old task, you come with more, a lot of energy. And that is the power of being creative. How we can cultivate creativity is taking pauses and giving ourselves, our mind and body some breathing time. I know this was this was a long answer. No, I love that. And I also feel like groups of people can cultivate, groups of people at work can cultivate group mindfulness practices. Obviously, one can be before the meeting starts, taking a minute. If people are not comfortable closing your eyes, maybe just lowering your gaze and taking a minute to come into presence for each other and putting your phones to the middle of the table or in a basket if you don't need them during the meeting. And these are things that when I do workshops, I do some sort of free association practices where I show images. I'll show an image of somebody on their computer while they're on their phone and their tablet and ask the group that I'm doing the workshop with to write down what's the thought, what's the feeling, and they whiteboard it. And then I'll show a picture of a clock. And I'll say, what's the thought? What's the feeling? And they'll go whiteboard it. And then I'll show a picture of a meeting taking place. And I'll say, what's the thought? What's the feeling? And then I'll show a a picture of an email inbox. And I won't lead people to, to what they're supposed to answer. But at the end of my workshop, I come back to these images and I invite groups to think about what mindfulness practices they can put into place and what they'll agree to start implementing right away. So it could be inviting people to a meeting and requesting that nobody brings their technology devices. It could be that they agree on one minute quiet time before the start of the meeting. It could be that somebody is championing a 15-minute meditation before the weekly meeting. It could mean being more mindful about not interrupting people going into their space, maybe using the chat in on the computer to see if somebody's available. I mean, there's a million different mindfulness practices that can help us show up better together with each other. And so that's how I like to help people bring it into their culture. When they get to choose what practices are going to benefit them, that's when we can invite that mindfulness, not just as individuals, but as a work culture. So when you show all those prompts in those workshops, so what what the response do you usually get from the attendees? (laughs) some of the images are like people bounce out of their chair to go on the whiteboard. Like when I show an image of an email inbox, people like bounce up and they write down too much or this should have been a meeting or they'll just do a myriad of things. So that's a big, (laughs) another one is when I show the image of a meeting, that one gets a huge response. People are like, not another one. People are interrupting 
with lots of different responses. But people, it's interesting because most of the reactions are negative. So most of the thoughts, most of the feelings tend to be the negativity bias at work, as opposed to the meeting, oh, problem solving, oh, creativity, oh, innovation. Those usually aren't the answers that they put on the board. Yeah, we talk about the positive side. We never talk yeah. about the negative side or the obstacles. But they get excited because then they get to determine which practices they want to begin implementing. And then usually I ask them to vote on maybe five practices that they're going to agree to start like that day. And then I come back a couple of weeks later virtually and see how the practices are going. And to in the path of productivity, we have so many obstacles. We get to remove those obstacles first, then we can be productive. So speaking of email box, we keep our outlook open all the time so we have all these you know emails popping up every time and this is a distraction and it is a distraction of being focusing on one thing i usually keep my mailbox closed i have certain times that i open and then i close and that's where my mindfulness practice plays a big role and if i'm super calm i'm amazingly productive i can do um i can focus on one thing if i don't sleep well if i'm not mindful of all these things then i'm going through my motions i'm in a reactive state if somebody shows up in my office and if they need something i have a choice to say yes to them or say no to them if i'm saying yes all the time then i'm you know i'm not able to produce the things that matter but yes i need to say yes sometimes i cannot say no all the time but if i'm so busy in the thing that i'm doing i can politely say hey i will get back to you in few minutes get give me some time but i will get back to you and that's where my mindfulness practice or my mindfulness comes into play that it's okay to say no it's okay to say yes the way we say that matters I love that because the biggest thing that we can do for another person is give them our full presence. And instead of saying yes and being distracted and giving half of our, you know, partial attention because we're distracted, saying no could be the biggest gift because you can say I will get back with you and then when you do get back with that person you give them your full attention and i recently was listening to a thought leader who was talking about developing our skill of listening and developing that skill of listening is all about giving our attention and i love that he shared that eliminating the words paying attention and substituting it with giving our attention it just sounds like such an intentional gift like we don't owe somebody so we don't have to pay them we can actually give them because it's our desire it's a compassionate desire right yes and when we are giving attention to somebody we are giving our gift and that gift is our presence full presence and we have all this technology that we are on the phone we are looking at our screen and then we are talking to somebody we are doing multitasking absolutely and even in meetings 
You know, a lot of us, first of all, will see that a meeting is scheduled and we'll automatically go into a judgment about somebody who's going to be in that meeting and maybe takes it over every time instead of having that beginner's mind. Like maybe I can sit and listen and this person has something important that I need to hear. Or when we go into meetings and we want to be heard, so we're not really giving our attention to everybody. And I think having mindfulness practices around when we meet together to not interrupt and mindfully listening and mindfully responding when that person is finished by maybe reiterating something that they said with a yes and, and then expanding on that versus going into judgment and arguing or going into blame with. Yeah. You use this phrase, yes. And so we are not discounting their opinion and it's their opinion, which has equally importance. So we can say yes we agree and I have this opinion. Let's work together and collaborate on that. Yes, for sure. And that actually comes from improv, which is very, very similar to mindfulness practices. So if you're ever watching improv, you're not going to see people in an improv skit going, no, 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 because then the the skit would actually end. (laughs) So in improv, you always say yes. And because otherwise, if you say, nope, I don't agree with that. There's nowhere to go but an argument. And if you're watching an improv skit, you don't want to watch people argue. So in if you put that practice into life, it's a very mindful practice to make sure that you're not putting somebody else down, even if your opinion is different. So I really love that practice. Yeah. And being mindfully vulnerable, saying no to things that we don't know and saying yes to things that we can really help on. We get to be vulnerable in our personal life and in our professional life. And vulnerability is not a weakness. It's about tuning into our thoughts and emotions and, uh, you know, just acknowledging everything, whatever we are feeling and going through in that moment. I love that. And that has so much to do with self-compassion. And it's also really compassionate for the other person as well. And compassion at work kind of gets a bad rap because people think it's hearts and flowers and hugs. And it's it's really not. Compassion at work has everything to do with being the bridge between nice and tough. So being able to have difficult conversations with people mindfully by taking the emotion out I'm sure you have felt this way where you had to go into your annual review or somebody called you in for a meeting and and you might have been filled with fear and the other person who is going to have to maybe deliver not the best news, maybe thinking that they have to do it with some sort of emotion like, like anger or something like that. And we don't have to do any of that. You know, the compassion of difficult conversations, the compassion of, of making, helping people be accountable is taking that emotion out. And meeting this person as another human being, coming into agreement and Compassion really is the intention and action to help relieve the suffering of another person. And I think that's the part that people don't really understand. It's not pacifying somebody else, but it's also not coming in and and avoiding making someone else accountable. And that's where the compassion plays a big role. When, When our team member or somebody in the office is not performing to our expectations, we can practice compassion 
in that conversation because we do not know what they are going through in their life. Maybe they had a bad day or having some trouble in their personal life and they are having emotional carryover from their personal life to professional life. And we try to separate personal versus professional. It's all same. Life is one. It's all integral part of one life. Nothing is different. When we go to work, this is my philosophy now that I think all the time. When I go to work, I go with my mind. I go with my body. I go with my soul. I do not keep my mind, body and soul at work, at home. I'm the same person. I'm not different. And we try to be different at work. And <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, please go ahead. No, it's funny. I, I always say, what is the common denominator that you bring to work with you? And it's your human being. So I think we're saying, I think we're definitely saying the same thing. And I have to laugh when I go on LinkedIn and other social media and there's stuff, leaders this, leaders that. And it's really humanity. It's really human beings. And I too agree that there's no separation with who you are at work and the rest of your life. We're just fully integrated human beings. And that is where I love the work of Simon Sinek. He's Mm -hmm. talking about human compassion, human connection and playing a long-term game versus short-term game. In corporate world, I have been in the corporate world for many, many years. And people play short games. I have been guilty of that in the past. We play short games to win projects, to win deals, and at the expense of other human beings. (laughs) Yeah. I know. I I used to come to work on a Monday morning and instead of getting an email that said, good morning, I would get a dashboard that compared my performance with everybody else on my team. And I can't think of a, a more soul damaging way to treat people. And I really know that performance, revenues, business optimization are so important. However, I do know that when we elevate the value you of the human being above the metrics that it will only serve to increase engagement. And when you increase engagement, that results in better business outcomes. And I don't know where we lost sight of that with doing so many things to defeat people and add to people's suffering through marginalizing the value of the human being in the workplace and all human beings have their perspectives their opinions and it all matters i can share one quick example that happened to me recently at a workplace i was reviewing my coworkers work and i had put some comments in that i wasn't okay with that thing and i had put in some comments and my coworker he was taking those things and those comments personally, negatively. And he was showing some resistance towards me. He was showing some distance towards me. And I was feeling that there is something going on. And I was not enjoying that part for a few days. I took a stand. I walked up to him and asked him, hey, do you have a few minutes to chat? And then I explained him, whatever comments I had put in, it's not about you. And it's not about me. I'm here to serve a purpose and I understand your concern. We are here to solve a problem. And I don't appreciate that, you know, this is whatever is going on between us. Let's work it together. And I understand and I respect your opinion. And whatever comments I have put in, this is from my experience. 
and my experience is not bad your experience your opinion and your perspective is not bad there is no good or bad let's work it together let's collaborate and do something bigger than what we are thinking now and based on that conversation where we were showing compassion and understanding perspective and showing empathy towards each other we were able to move through that situation that is so beautiful i'm so happy that you shared that example i one of the things i like to do in my workshop hello can you hear me yeah sorry about that during my workshops, I ask everybody to take out their phone because at the beginning of my workshops, I tell everybody to put their phone away. But at one point I ask everybody to take out their phone and they have 30 seconds to find a picture in their phone. Then I ask them to walk around the room and find somebody that they really don't know very well. And the first person has, I ask them to decide which one is going to go first and then the first person has 45 seconds to share a story about the picture they chose in their phone. The other person does not say anything or ask any questions. And then after 45 seconds, the second person can share the picture that they want to share from their phone. And then there's no dialogue, no discussion. And then I ask everybody, what happened? What did they notice? And people will talk about the similarities. People will say, oh, I didn't know this person had children. I didn't know this person had a dog, you know, and they'll, they'll see each other beyond their roles because a lot of times at work, we look at other people as objects to perform tasks to help us achieve our own goal, right? So this person yes. plays this role in helping me achieve this goal or this person, we don't look at, you know, Nishant, we'll look at him as the tech guy who does X, Y, Z. Or we look at people as the last interaction we had with them. So it's like top chef, you know, people aren't the last bad meal they made. So people aren't the last interaction that you had with them. And oftentimes we're looking at somebody with this enemy image, like, oh, this person is a jerk. And every time we see them down the hall, we're judging them. Yes. I read this article in Forbes recently that we acknowledge and recognize people for what they do. Yeah. Instead, we need to acknowledge and recognize people for who they are. Mm -hmm. We can say, hey, thank you for being a great dad. But for that, we need to know their life. And I work at it. I'm not great at it <laughs> at, at workplace. So I, I really work hard to really connect with people beyond work. Yeah, it's really important. And even it could take five minutes. I think that one of the things that people can do, especially if you have people that report to you, is make a list of the people that report to you and intentionally list their gifts and talents that have nothing to do with numbers and measurements. Like, what is this person bring to the team? Do they bring a great attitude? Do they bring insights? Whatever it is. And make an intention of recognizing that person in a conversation or in a note, even a handwritten note, if possible. Like, I just wanted to send you a note. Thank you for always doing X, Y, Z, you know, doing that intentional exercise. And the other one is if you're holding this person in an image, in a negative image, maybe write down what the situation was that made you think this person, that makes you think this person is a jerk or whatever it is that you keep on thinking when you think of this person. 
And then taking some time to mindfully reframe, like, why do you think this person acted like this or did this? And then could there be another reason this person might have done this so that you can let go of the judgment that you're holding against this other person? Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And uh, before we end this conversation, I would like to ask you, uh, what two or three mindfulness fitness practices you would like to give away to our listeners? I love that. Um, thanks for asking. So one of the things that a lot of people have difficulty with is when they run, they feel the need to have their headphones on or feel the need to have music on. And I would like to invite people to explore what it might be like to run without headphones on and notice, notice what they see, notice the sensations, notice the smells, the sounds, what they see with their eyes, and maybe incorporate gratitude into that as well. You know, running and being grateful for the sky and the clouds and, and intentionally incorporating that gratitude with their run, or it could be a walk as well. And then in terms of taking time to stretch, move the body and intentionally noticing each body part and doing that sort of gratitude, doing that as well. And then I think part of being physical is coming into stillness. Part of being physical is the ability to come into stillness, whether it's standing or whether it's sitting or whether it's laying down, not for the intention of falling asleep, but intentionally focusing our awareness on just, just the breath. So those are just some of the things I think from a physical standpoint that we can do. They are few, but they will serve you for so long. <laughs> that is amazing. Thank you so much, Shelly. Thank you so much. And I'm truly honored to have you on the show. This really has been an honor for me as well. Nishan, thank you so much for inviting me to connect with you today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast with Shelly Brown. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned from this episode that you can apply in your life. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast, The Nishan Gad Show on Apple Podcasts. Rate and please leave reviews. Also, you can make an impact in someone else's life by sharing this podcast. When you share this, you can transform someone else's life. I'm so grateful for having Shelly Brown on this podcast and share her message with the world. So please spread the message everywhere to spread inspiration. Thank you again.